In Viaggio, The Travels of Pope Francis is a new documentary from Academy Award-nominated director Gianfranco Rossi. The film provides a deeply intimate look at Francis's papacy as he travels the world meeting the faithful. In theaters for special screenings on Monday, March 27th. Find more information at inviagiodoc.com. Available to rent and own on digital March 31st. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley, and a happy St. Patrick's Day yes, to you. Yes, we are actually having it over drinks this time. We yes. Got, <laughs> we got our usual dispensation, so... We did not have any Irish whiskey, so what are we? What are we drinking? There, there was some uh, scotch from <laughs> okay. Father Malone, our uh, former boss uh, here at America. He gifted that to us before we left, um, and he is an Irishman and loves this holiday. So we're drinking this in his honor. Yes. Uh, as longtime <laughs> listeners of the show will note, we abstain from alcohol on the show during Lent, except for the week of St. Patrick's Day, which is this week, which is going to flow into one of our Signs of the Times segments, if Correct. I'm not mistaken. So cheers! Cheers. And who are we talking to this week? We have a really exciting conversation this week. We got to talk to our own bishop, uh, Bishop Robert Brennan of Brooklyn, who is also the former bishop of Columbus, Ohio. So he's like doubly your bishop. Yes. <laughs> um, and we have a pretty wide ranging conversation about you know life as a bishop. How great to, Ohio is. How gr- we, go- we lingered for a while on <laughs> how great on Ohio, Ohio is and how wonderful it is. Uh, but we did talk about Ohio. We talked about Brooklyn, which is a really fascinating diocese. It's got to be the most diverse linguistically and ethically in the United States. So coming into that as a, as a new bishop and how do you wrap your hands around it? Um, and then also, you know, the issue of closing parishes, which is something that Brooklyn is facing, like a lot of uh, dioceses around the country. Yeah, I don't know if people know this, but um, in New York City, there's the Archdiocese of New York, which is Manhattan, Staten Island, the Bronx. And then there's the Diocese of Brooklyn, Queens, which is a separate, totally separate diocese. And that's where we live. And so that is why Bishop Brennan is our local ordinary. So that is a great conversation. But before that, we will have Signs of the Times where we're talking about uh, St. Patrick's Day dispensations on eating meat and whether or not people should take advantage of those. And a university in Philadelphia, a Jesuit university that has a new certificate program on in cannabis. Yes. So that's very, very feisty conversations to come. Um, and then in face sharing, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Ignatian uh, practice of repetition in prayer and why you might want to engage in that. But before that, we have a few words from our sponsor this week. If you've been looking for a way to grow closer to Jesus this Lent, we found a great opportunity for you. Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Scherschlicht is a podcast where you learn how to meditate and establish a daily habit of prayer while discovering the truths of the Catholic faith. It's the fastest growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. Each day, a different topic is explored, allowing you to learn your faith in bite-sized daily portions while you pray the rosary. So join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a rosary, all in under 20 minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app by searching Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosary.net. That's www.dailyrosary.net. 
And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? Uh, So St. Patrick's Day is uh, today. This is when this episode comes out. We're recording on Wednesday, but um, it's falling on a Lenten Friday. Uh, The last time this happened was in 2017 um, and then 2006 before that. Um, And it's an issue because uh, (laughs) lots of people like to celebrate St. Patrick's Day um, in a number of ways, but one of the main traditions here in the United States is eating corned beef and cabbage. Uh, that's, of course, a, a no-no in the Catholic Church because we are called to abstain from meat on Fridays during Lent. Yes, but around the country, bishops are giving uh, their parishioners uh, dispensations to uh, to eat meat on St. Patrick's Day, but often with like strings attached. So you can you can have your corned beef hash, but you also have to do an act of charity or go to mass or say a rosary or, or they, they have some options. For yeah. Your... <laughs> and so like basically what this comes down to under canon law, a diocesan bishop is has the legal authority to dispense the faithful from uh, an obligation like abstaining from meat. What's interesting here in the United States is that each diocesan bishop is kind of left to his own discretion, right? So you mm-hmm. mentioned that some of them are kind of carte blanche, oftentimes with like a make sure you do something nice on the side too. Um, some of them are no, um, and some of them are like no, but you can ask, uh, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was I think Bishop Tobin in Rhode Island. <laughs> Basically, you have to email or text the, the diocese to get your specific dispensation. <laughs> yeah, um, I think Cincinnati I saw too is doing mm-hmm. that. Um, My favorite the- is Chicago, where <laughs> it's just so funny. It's quote Catholics who find themselves at an event where meat is served in celebrating St. Patrick. May in good conscience substitute the rule of abstinence for another penance. And just like this idea of like, oh, I just find myself at, at a St. Patrick's Day party. And it'd be How rude did, to say no. To, it'd be rude to say no to the corned beef. So I ought to, yeah. I ought to in, indulge. Um, this also comes up occasionally um, for the Feast of St. Joseph, although that's not really a, a debate because uh, the Feast of St. Joseph is a solemnity and the church uh, says that there should be no fasting on solemnity specifically. Right. And in terms of St. Patrick's Day, if you live in a city where the patron is St. Patrick, then the feast is automatically a solemnity there. So here in New York, I think we we don't need the dispensation. Well, right? if we're in Manhattan, oh, we yes. don't. If we're in Brooklyn, we do, which is kind of funny. <laughs> um, so we do know that Bishop Brennan, who you'll hear from later in this podcast, is giving a dispensation because, I mean, Irish immigrants were have been long important to this diocese. And so big celebrations planned for St. Patrick's. But not everyone is, and not every bishop who's been on this podcast is even granting a dispensation. Uh, bishop William Walk, uh, Pensacola, Tallahassee, who you we talked to him about evangelization on this podcast. Um, he's not granting his flock dispensation to eat meat. Um, instead, is encouraging the faithful to, quote, honor the life of St. Patrick with our prayers and devotions by attending mass and asking for his intercession. And to which I think some people will say, thanks, but come on, <laughs> Bishop. Yeah. So where do you, where do you fall on this? Are you going to eat corned beef on Friday? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. No. Okay. Um, there's no, there's no legal prohibition, you know, stopping me from in canon law. Um, so I think it makes sense to. I think part of the fun of Catholicism is like having rules, and then when you have exceptions to the rules, indulging yeah. in them. That feels t- that that is a very Catholic way of living to me. Um, I'm curious since you have no. N- no steak in this game. Get it? Steak. Oh my god. S T A K. Since you're a vegetarian, yeah. what your take on this is? Honestly, it's bafflement that anyone could look at corned beef hash and be like, "Ah, oh, I want it so badly, <laughs> so much that I need a permission slip from my bishop." <laughs> 
<laughs> like of all the meats to to crave, I, like it just doesn't seem like that appealing. Uh, so I, it it just confuses me that well, people but you, feel so passionate. But it's about not this. like it's just for corned beef hash. Like yeah. you can take this opportunity to have bacon. I feel like that's cheating on top of cheating. <laughs> well, but there's nothing that says you can only have corned beef hash. I think there should. <laughs> okay, all right. So that's your take. Is yes. that it's you could have it, but it has to be sort of like the least. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're going to offend some listeners here, but the least flavorful form of eating yeah. meat. Yeah. All right. I respect <laughs> it. I don't agree with it, and I will not follow it. So uh, I will I, be having. Bacon do you think Friday. that as a pescatarian, I should not eat fish on Fridays during Lent? Because yes. I don't really have an. Well, you, I, I think you have to find sacrifice. a a similar sacrifice. Yeah. I don't think you can just. I mean, who am I? You should ask your <laughs> spiritual director. But okay. if you're asking me, yes, you you should find a different. Okay. Thing. All right. We'll see. So, listeners, I think it is wise to both follow your conscience and the directives of your local diocesan bishop. What's our next story, Ashley? So for our next story, we're going down to Philadelphia to St. Joseph's University, a Jesuit school in that city uh, that has started a cannabis certificate program. It started back in 2020, but it's, I guess, got some attention because a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer decided to ask theologians what they thought about this, and not everyone is on board. No, uh, and it, it's also like the game has changed a little bit because weed's now uh, legal in 21 states, um, and it's one of the fastest growing industries in the country. Of course, just it is an interesting story that you know Catholic school and Catholicism. Uh, we'll say like Catholic teaching is mixed at your most generous interpretation, but probably just against the use of marijuana recreationally in general. That for this to be taught at a Catholic school, I think, is sort of an interesting phenomena. Yeah. And- Especially when you just when I think about Jesuit education, like the first thing that comes to mind is not like teaching students how to run a weed shop. It's like, are, and are those really the values that we want? But I guess that could go for like any business degree at a sure. Jesuit university. I think it's it's an interesting model. It's only online. It's like six months, and then you you learn about the business and the agriculture of cannabis. There is this very interesting distinction that Catholics make about drugs versus alcohol. Like alcohol, no problem as long as you do it responsibly. But when it comes to other drugs, there's this idea that they inhibit our ability to reason. And then if you don't have that rational capacity, you can't, you're not able to exercise your free will to lead like a moral life, Um, which I just think could be true for some drugs, but I'm not sure if marijuana is one of them. Yeah, I think you'd, I, you know, a moral theologian could come in here and correct us on the yeah. finer details of this. But I, the idea of like alcohol being a gradient where you sort of like can have some up until the point where your reason is inhibited and then it's then it's sinful. Um, and for some reason, marijuana, the approach is pretty blanket that like, nope, any, any weed is bad. Any recreational use of it is bad um, because it always de facto inhibits your reason the same amount all the time. From friends I've talked to, that's not the case. And so I don't really I don't really understand the sort of carte blanche we're against this. I think another factor that we have to consider is that marijuana is used for medicinal purposes in a lot of cases, right? And frankly, the church, like it doesn't really stand against that. Um, and so I don't know if there's business to be had in developing drugs to treat people, the church doesn't stand in the way of that or teaching people to form businesses with that. And so I think we've 
not really sorted out exactly what Catholics should think. I will say also, this is not at the top of my like priority list to, for the church to sort out. I don't know if you feel. Yeah, no. In recent years, as more states have been legalizing marijuana for recreational use, bishops have, you know, they've used their public policy arm to to lobby against those efforts, which I agree would not be not be my top priority. But they can point to Pope Francis, who's speaking in 2014 and said, drug, drug addiction is an evil and with evil, there can be no yielding or compromise. Attempts, however limited to legalize so-called recreational drugs are not only highly questionable from a legislative standpoint, but they fail to produce the desired effects. So Pope Francis doesn't seem to admit a lot of ambiguity on on this. I mean, he wasn't saying specifically marijuana, but he, I yeah. Think. And I, I feel like I want to I don't know. I qualify the Pope's words a little bit here, which is like, okay, well, drug addiction is like an absolute evil, but it is not a moral failing, right? The way that we understand addiction now today, right? We understand that sort of psychologically and medically, um, which I don't think should be considered a failing. And I think what he implies here is that any type of legalization is going to lead to more addictions. Frankly, I don't know the studies on that. Um, But if, you know, if that is the case, that's certainly something to look at when you're considering the um, morality of, of of laws around it. But for reasons I said before, I, I just this doesn't seem like our fight to have, especially with weed. I think there are other, you know, classified drugs that, you know, you want to hold the line on as a church. Yeah. Uh, America Magazine back in 2013, I think kind of went out on a limb for that time in, in calling for, they don't specifically call for the legalization of marijuana, but come pretty close. They basically put it as a question like, is it time? And then give all the reasons why it is time. Um, And and they point to like justice factors, like the fact that marijuana being illegal uh, leads to mass incarceration, drug trafficking, and all the sin and uh, pain that surrounds all that. And just massive amounts of, you know, resources used yeah. by the government. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. I think the game has changed now with legalization in 21 states, with medical marijuana being a thing that's more accepted and used. Um, I don't know. It sounds like we have another topic to take up at the Synod. Yeah. So I <laughs> look forward to hearing uh, the church's definitive ruling at the Synod on synodality on marijuana. <laughs> and now stick around for our conversation with Bishop Robert Brennan. Joining us in studio is Bishop Robert Brennan. Bishop Brennan is the Bishop of the Diocese of Brooklyn and the host of the Big City Catholics podcast. Welcome to Jesuitical Bishop. I'm glad to be here. I've been hearing a lot about you and I'm <laughs> looking forward to this conversation. I I feel like um, you've been following me a little bit um, because I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. You were most recently bishop there and then you came to came to Brooklyn and I was in my group chat with my family texting and be like, ha, we're stealing uh, stealing your bishop. Sorry about that. And they were very upset about that. Do you miss Ohio often? I miss Ohio. I, miss I have it. to be honest. I love Brooklyn and Queens. Because you, you grew up, you're a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker. But I grew Ohio up in Suffolk County. <laughs> but Ohio stole my heart. You're right. They really did. Um, I, I I loved it. I used to tell people when I was in Ohio, they said, what do you miss about Long Island? And I would say, well, I miss my family and I miss the ocean. And now they say, what do you miss about Ohio? And I say, I miss the open roads. Yeah. (laughs) Columbus um, had a diversity of lifestyle. And Zach, you would know this. So you had 
the city. I mean, it's certainly not as dense as New York City or Brooklyn and Queens, but you had the city feel, but you had the suburban feel, sort of like where you were. And then you had the rural feel, and that that was great. I, I enjoyed all those different components of life. One of the things we wanted to ask you is like, your name, Bishop of a diocese. And you were kind of, you know, Pope Francis has talked about, you know, bishops needing to be like married to their diocese, right? And, you know, you're only there two years and you kind of, and you get a phone call and it's like, all right, time to, time to leave. Um, what was that process like? I mean, just even just emotionally, right? Where you're, you're thinking you're going to be somewhere for maybe the rest of your life. And I was settling in. I was really settling in. I was happy there. Um, certainly again, Brooklyn and Queens had its own appeal to it, but, um, yeah, my heart was broken when I got that call. I was feeling very, very much at home there, falling very much in love with uh, the people and with the different parishes. I I had a year there in Columbus before COVID hit. So I had gotten to all the just about all the parishes um, and then, of course, operated in that COVID uh, mindset. And we were emerging from it and it was kind of getting exciting again. Um, I, I had a nice connection with Ohio State, with... Uh, the campus ministry crowd there. And um, in fact, I was going there the following day. And I just remember being at Ohio State and saying, I'm leaving all this behind me. I couldn't tell anybody. Um, uh, it, 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 was, it was a heartbreak. Once I got here, now my heart's here. I'm, uh, my feet are on the ground. My heart's in the air here. Now a new adventure. I'm curious about the church in, in that part of the country. You mentioned, you know, the diversity of rural and urban. Um, but is are there concerns in the parishes and in the diocese that you notice there that are distinct of kind of the the questions and challenges we face in as Northeast Catholics? First of all, one big difference between Long Island, where I was from, and 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 Brooklyn and Ohio is um, the population, the Catholic population. So whereas here we're just about half, um, in Ohio, we're about 10%, Yeah, 10% Catholic. Um, that said, it's a very strong minority. It's a, it, 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 people want to know what Catholics are thinking and what the Catholic Church is doing. I used to make a joke out of it. I arrived during Lent and I said, the fish fry culture was huge. I was so sad when I moved to New York and I feel like there's just, it's not a thing here. It's just not a thing. The Lenten, the Knights of Columbus fish fry on Fridays during Lent. It was like, it's a treasured childhood tradition of mine. And I got here and I'm like, where do I find the fish? You live next to an ocean. What's going on? <laughs> it's yeah. So, so that was a culture and, and it crossed not just among the Catholics. So the Catholics left an imprint with that. Even I used to joke, um, the fast food places like McDonald's on their marquee, they would have limited time specials, Friday fish sandwiches. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. It, it just was, it was such a big part of, of life there. And I think that's one way. It, it's s simple, it's subtle, but it's it just shows one way that Catholic Church, the people of God had an influence, had a contribution to life in Ohio. Yeah, and I imagine, I mean, it is just a little different when you are sort of like a, a a strong minority, but a minority religious population versus like on the Northeast where, you know, Catholics had a lot of sort of like cultural and political power and influence. Um, oftentimes, you know, the sort of like European wave of immigrants came and settled here. Um, oftentimes in places like Ohio, it's sort of um, new immigrants coming. And that's still true for Brooklyn and Queens, I think. 
but those differences has got to be i mean it's it's been interesting for me to see it is and you know i think because of that difference that in ohio there's i, I think there's a very strong missionary spirit especially among some of the young people who are involved in the church but there's to me you don't take as much for granted. I think there's a, a, among the Catholics, at least those who are practicing, it, it, it's something very, very important to them. And again, the the influence of the Catholic Church is very strong. Whereas I think here in the Northeast, we just kind of take things a little bit more for granted. Well, Zach could talk about Ohio all day, but yeah. I want I want to bring us back to Brooklyn. Okay, <laughs> we're, we're actually we should remind our listeners that this is Ashley and I are. Uh, this is our diocese, right? Yeah. This is where we live. This is where we worship. Um, and yeah, so one thing, when you look at the Diocese of Brooklyn, it it has to be close to like one of the mo- most ethnically diverse dioceses in the country. Like, exactly. I think there are over 30 languages said it regularly at masses throughout. Every Sunday. Throughout, yeah, which is just wild to think about. How, how, how do you, in your first, you've only been here for a little over a year, but how do you get to know a parish that big and diverse? It's, it, it's both a challenge but uh, an adventure and excitement. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is a different kind of diversity. This is more of the diversity of what we mean when we hear the word or say the word diversity. Um, and, you know, what's interesting here is it's not just that we have parishes that express different nationalities, but even within the parishes. So mm. parishes themselves are very diverse. So in Queens, some of the pastors will say, our zip codes are among the most diverse in the country, have more um, ethnic populations. Um, you know, it's not like we have an Italian-speaking parish, a Spanish-speaking parish, and a Chinese-speaking parish. In the same parish, you have all three languages um, for mass every week. How do you staff or resource <laughs> parishes like that? That's a good question. That's a scary thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, certainly, you, what you need from pastors are people who can pull together the gifts of many different people, mm-hmm. and um, and and so that you can get that sense of parish unity. That's that's one piece of it. Um, fortunately, we do have some multilingual priests and um and and staff people we have some chinese priests who speak spanish and english we have some haitian priests who speak spanish and in english we have english priests who speak multiple languages that's that's a great help i think a lot of people might be used to seeing uh parishes where they have you know a couple of english masses a couple of spanish masses um but those parishioners might not actually interact all that much. Um, I'm wondering if you've witnessed any parishes in in the diocese where they they are catering to a diverse community, but there's true true community and integration among the different groups. I've seen a few places where that that seems to be happening. It's it's not easy. You know, one of the things I have to catch myself, sometimes I'll be at, at mass and you want, in the name of trying to be inclusive and welcome people in, you want to do a little bit more in Spanish, but then you realize, okay, I'm doing it in English and I'm doing it in Spanish, but now I'm leaving out these other languages. So you have to be attentive to that. Um, but I, I've seen a few parishes where the team, they work very hard at pulling it all together and, and, and do a great job. But you know, you, you made me think of something else. Even what we call the English-speaking part of the parish is itself very diverse. Mm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the English-speaking part of the parish is really Filipino. 
um, or a large African-American contingent. So that has a certain spirituality as well that, that can't be lost or forgotten simply because we speak the same language. There's a, a spirituality that's involved. And this is... It- Historically, is this a new trend? Because it sounds, I mean, I don't, the image I have in my head is you would have your German church, your Italian church, your Irish church, and they were pretty separated communities. Is, is this sort of a new phenomenon? It is. You're right. Brooklyn, like many other communities across the country, you would have very close by, maybe a block away. You'd have different churches that catered to particular um, ethnic communities. You had your Irish church, your Italian church, um, the Germans. So it would, but you know what's happened in Brooklyn over the last few years is you see different waves of immigration. So you know, one group comes in, and then they begin to raise their family. But the next generation starts to move in one direction or another, and then you have um, a, a new group of immigrants coming in. I. I Use the image when I was installed of like the the waves coming in with the tides, kind of coming in and going out, coming in and going out. So, um, so I think as you, this immigration brings people from a much wider uh, swath of of the world, um, it, it people are coming together more and more. And what's like best practices that you like try to encourage within parishes to like, on the one hand, have sort of like culturally relevant ministries. For for different groups, but also ways like of bringing them together. Uh, what does like a parish identity look like then? Well, to be honest, I'm still learning. I'm learning from the parishes at what they're doing. You know, this is an age old reality because um, this goes back to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right now, at this point point in the year, we're reading from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, mm-hmm. and. He, that's what you know. Corinth. I I often say Corinth is a city very much like New York, especially Brooklyn and Queens, where you had people from all over the world were passing through Corinth. Well, there you got Brooklyn Queens, and you're trying to figure out how we bring all those cultural realities together. A lot of parishes celebrate the important feast of the different communities, and when it works well. The rest of the parish comes to those feasts. Um, there are certain things, especially like around Holy Week, where they will try to do things all together. So it's that balancing act of maintaining the unique spirituality of one particular community, but also reminding us that at the same time, that there's that unity in the diversity. So one one kind of leftover effect of this history of Brooklyn where you had all these different groups coming, the Irish, the German, the Italian, having their parish. We have a lot of churches. <laughs> um, there, Where I live, I can probably walk to 10, oh, sure. 10, 11 churches that are, you know, large buildings. <laughs> and, and the reality is there are less Catholics going to mass on Sundays now. Um, so I'm wondering what is the purpose of a parish today? What are some of the hard decisions that the diocese might have to make around um, these communities and these buildings? What are you thinking about all that? That's a conversation that we're having. There are two factors that lead to some of these changes. One is now the newer group of immigrants and actually some of the people from other parts of the U.S. moving in tend not to be Catholic. And so you had some of your real Catholic strongholds um, that are seeing a diversity in the population, but they're not Catholic. So you, you have a lot of churches and not a lot of people. But then you also have the reality of people who aren't practicing their faith. 
And so that too brings down the numbers. I, we don't have a big planning process going on where we're going to close X amount of parishes in the next 10 years. That's not the plan. But what we are doing is looking at the, each region and saying, how can we work together? So we've been combining parishes over the course of the years. Um, that's been happening. Sometimes it happens that two parishes just collaborate under one pastor. Sometimes it reaches a point where we end up actually closing a parish and um, even to the point of selling the site, the worship site. I tend to be a bit more ruthless in my like view of these things because I'm like, building's empty. Those are resources we could use in a much more, I don't know, responsible way, right? Mm -hmm. Than paying for the air conditioning or the electricity or or the property, whatever. Like, I see it and I'm like, we got to close it. That's not what the church is not about a building. And, you know, the building is obviously important to a lot of people over time. And I probably need more patience on how to think about that or communicate that. How do you, when someone's like in front of you, like, how could you close my parish that I've been going to for generations, even though it, there's only 25 people here, there's still a lot of emotional involvement in that. Oh, absolutely. You know, these are people that say, well, this is where I was baptized. This is where um, I raised my children. And let's be honest, that was the language we spoke for a long time too. We spoke the language of the parish. Yeah. And so we really, for years and years and years, built up parish identity. Um, we're living in a new era in the life of the church. And we have to start thinking more about being Catholic, about being church. You, you make a good point, Zach. Um, I, I would often say the church is not a museum, yeah. nor are we a real estate agency, but we are um, we are a living organism. Um, where I have had to deal with this, uh, it, well, in Columbus, mm -hmm. um, we had a county way in the South where I said, we, we, we can't afford the real estate to maintain seven campuses. Mm -hmm. But we, we, what we want to do is build up Catholic life. That's another thing. There's a big shift. You, you speak for a new generation that maybe isn't necessarily tied to parishes, but going to where you are fed. Totally. And so how do we build up Catholic life? And in, in this new era, we have to be a little more nimble. We have to meet people where they are, walk with people along the way. Um, but while you do that, you're also respecting, maybe encouraging people to 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 make that next step. You, it's it, it is a fine line. Mm. And you've got to be the bad guy, I imagine, in a lot of yes. conversations. Sometimes you have to do it, but but it's important to do it with respect for people, and it's important to do it by listening to people and having the, that conversation. I have found that other bishops who've had to do this and other places where I've had to do it, people may not agree with you, but if the conversation's been had, people will understand. Yeah. And yeah. but the other reality is when when is it not healthy for a community to be so small and to become turned in on itself? Isn't it healthier that we can pull together? Um, isn't it more um uplifting when you go to church and there's a crowd of people around you. Like as a young person that moves to Brooklyn, you, you okay, okay, I landed in this neighborhood. I, I Google where's closest Catholic church. I walk over and then there's 15 people. Everybody's got three pews of themselves. That That is so disheartening. It is. And, and so that's why I think a lot of, you see a lot of young people 
Paris shop, right? Because they're just, I mean, they're looking for a place where that feels dynamic and alive. Right. Yeah. And that may or may not be tied to a building. I agree. Right, yeah. You know, so it's 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 recognizing being living the church. What was the transition like for you? So I, uh, most people become priests to be pastors. <laughs> and then uh, I've often heard, you know, this move from priest to bishop, you could, it can feel like you're becoming an administrator or <laughs> you know, the head of... Uh, well, in some ways for me, um, I had been an auxiliary bishop on Long Island, had been vicar general, so I was kind of doing a lot of administration work. They're still mm -hmm. with very pastoral, strong pastoral connections. In a sense, it, this now I feel a little bit more like a pastor again, mm. because now I'm, you know, there's an administration part of it, but now I'm out and visiting the parishes and working with people. So in some ways, it's been um, rejuvenating for me. Yeah. How do you keep the lines of communication open with parishioners? I think your average Catholic in the pew wouldn't think of reaching out to their bishop unless they had a big complaint that they needed to register and they've been to the ignored by everyone else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how do you how do you maintain a, a, a listening church? First of all, I was uh, timing. I was given a great gift. I walked into Brooklyn and Queens just as they were beginning the diocesan phase of the synod. And so in my first 90 days, the first three months, um, I got to 22 deaneries where they had already done the process in their parishes um, for the deanery. And so then they sent delegates. And so I, I heard from each deanery, which was a great way for me to get to know the, the diocese by learning the different neighborhoods. Second thing. I don't want to sound overly clerical here, but I have to rely on pastors. As you, in some ways, I needed to get to know the priests because, let's be honest, to most Catholics, who am I but a picture on the wall? <laughs> right? Um, and we say your name in And mass. my name in the, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but most people know their bishop through their pastors and through their parishes. And so it's important for me to be able to get out among the parishes so that I'm, so that I'm there. Of course, you're not. How, how many meaningful conversations are you going to have in a parish visit? You have some, but you're mostly just saying hello to people. So there's that sense of us actually being on the walk together. But, um, but, but I count on parishes being lis a listening church, you know? So far, that's helped me a lot. You've also, I've noticed, shifted to some informal ways of communication, right? Or I, I don't know if they're informal, but you've got a podcast. You're doing, you're doing a lot of video stuff. Um, uh, whereas traditionally, maybe the the bishop of a diocese would ever do those things, right? How's how has that been? Do you feel like you're able to connect with people where they are a little more? I hope so. Where when I was in Columbus, it wasn't the it wasn't a podcast, but we actually there was a radio station, a Catholic radio station, it was independent of the diocese. And essentially, you know, I appear on talk shows once in a while, but um, but during COVID, we had maybe just fifteen minutes every day, and it was just a way for me to communicate to people. That's that's all it was. I'm I'm not I wasn't looking really to do a hit show or a big broadcast or really even to reach beyond the diocese. It was really communication tools, and now I came here to Brooklyn and. 
I'm not good on the sound bites, you know. So we have a TV station and we have the news program, and that's all very, very good. But you know, on a half-hour news program, you might just do a sound bite. You might take three or four minutes in a, in a, a lengthy conversation. Um, just wait to see the edit job on this conference. Oh, believe me, they, we do some edit jobs. <laughs> I think you get more than three minutes out of it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And so I have that in, um, in in the podcast. So now it gives us a chance really to do a little more of an analytical, but it's first and foremost a communication with the people of the diocese. Um, and and that's that's the point of, of our podcast. Yours yeah. has a little bit of a broader reach. Yeah, well, no, I think it's significant that that you were willing to come on our podcast. I um, think it was nice that you asked. Yeah, because we, you know, we are trying to reach young Catholics throughout the country, um, and and people like hearing from bishops. Like they're often talked about in the collective, and whether right. for better or worse, and people have their opinions about the bishops. Um, but it's been really nice as something that we've been able to do at a podcast is just actually get to know them. Um, it's, it's a great opportunity for me, and I appreciate yeah. being asked. You mentioned uh, being in Brooklyn right as we were starting the diocesan phase of the Synod process. Um, I'm curious, what are, you, what are you hearing? What are what are people's hopes? What are your hopes for how this, how this all shakes out? I was always concerned about young people in general. There'd be um, conversations about young people, but kind of like the same old approach. Like, like we have to do more of what we've been doing before, which wasn't really um, hitting the hearts of young people. Another formation, people would say, actually, they were talking about formation for children, but also for themselves. People would say, I don't feel comfortable talking about my faith because I'm not sure if I have it right. And, um, and then the third was, again, that sense of communication. But what I really found interesting was when we got different. You talk about like in the southern part of Brooklyn, where their concerns are, okay, people are moving in and there's not that sense of, of, of a Catholic population anymore. There were real strongholds in the past, real Catholic strongholds. And now it's non-Christian. And so the people are looking to shape their identity. We have other parts of Queens where with the immigrant population, especially the Hispanic population, they're bursting at the seams. We have a church, we have a parish here where there are 11 masses on Sunday, every hour and a half, straight through the day, including 1.30, 3 o'clock and 4.30 up until 6 o'clock. And people literally are lined up outside because they, they line up along the side of the church and then around and around the corner. And, so there are other places where they're bursting at the seams. So I was really interested in hearing what is life like? What is, what is it like to be a Catholic and live in Brooklyn or to be a Catholic and live in Queens? What are some of, you know, they, they people spoke about some of the housing issues. That became very, um, that uh, talking to the pastors, a lot of pastors were talking about how in some of our neighborhoods, people are being priced out of their homes. And what, what does what effect does that have on parish life and on Catholic life? Um, the some of the people were struggling um, with family issues, education issues. Those were some of the things that really fascinated me because that's where the rubber hits the road. Because you know, Gaudium et Spes, it's it's looking at the signs of the times, but bringing the light of the faith to the signs of the times, not the other way around. It's bringing that light of faith in a very changing lived reality. Yeah, it's interesting 
how you describe what you've been hearing from parishes, because at least in the Catholic media, we're we're not talking about the affordable housing crisis as it relates to Catholics. Like, to be honest, we talk about the hot button issues. We talk about mm-hmm. LGBT Catholics, women in the church, um, those you know, those flashpoints that people have very strong opinions about. Um, and I'm curious if do you think we're not paying attention to the the bigger issues, or do you think that's those a very good question? Important? So, of course, in, in for us to incinerate, some of those questions came up. But it's for, for for a lot of people, it it really is. How does my faith meet my daily life? And again, in Brooklyn and Queens, uh, you got areas like East New York, Bed Stuy. Now you have families kind of having to double up in an apartment and then triple up in an apartment because uh, it's um, it's the same place. It's just as poor, but everything around it is 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 um, is changing. And you know, in some ways, we talk about the neighborhood improving, but there are people who are living in those neighborhoods are being left behind. I mean, I can count. I mean, how many high rises have gone up in the last like ten years since we've moved into Brooklyn? It is astounding. I think, and I mean, for the real question is then, okay, how does the church be a resource for those conversations? Right? Is it being a voice in local That's politics? Where is it? I, it's a little bit of, of of all of that. So there's a matter of being a the voice in the politics. It's a matter of really the, the, in the church itself, talking to each other, um, trying to figure that out. Uh, um, the other reality that's happening here in Brooklyn and Queens is meeting the needs of a lot of people now who are showing up at our doorsteps, um, the, the arrival of new migrants. And in some ways, the, the new migrants are breathing new life into our parishes, people, but people are showing up at our parishes. And I mean this, I'm not exaggerating, literally with the the clothes on their back. I, I'm very proud of the way that parishes are mobilizing, coming together to help each other um, to meet those needs. Because it's it, this isn't an organized thing. This isn't the church saying, okay, we're going to set up a center here. Mm-hmm. This is, well, there happens to be a, sh- a shelter here. So people are knocking on this door. And, and that's what would happen. People would come to mass on Sunday because they found that that's a place where they might find some help and some community. And I know that like some of the things that have been political stunts or media stunts where you have immigrants and migrants kind of getting bused to New York City. A lot of times they they land in in Brooklyn and Queens and you know it's Catholic charities and parishes on the ground that are are there to respond. Right. And now that's been happening it's it's a, co- a combination of things so that's part of it would be the busing. Some of it though has been was happening even before that. But what was happening is the city would be setting up these makeshift um centers, uh, shelters. And so um uh you, and you would have competing values because on one hand level, you have to respect the privacy of families living in the shelter. On the other hand, the people who are in, the, are in a position to help in the church would like to be able to have some contact to know where people are. And and the only way we would know is if people came to us. And um, so, yeah, we were meeting all those needs. It, it, you know, it's a complicated issue because people have very, very strong feelings about immigration at both ends of the spectrum. And quite frankly, in my view, both parties dropped the ball. Both parties, in, in some ways, I think in the political world and maybe even in the media world, there's almost like this desire to have the problem rather than to fix it. But for us in the church, the reality is when you have a family in front of you that's poorly clothed and need a food, we have to respond. 
Since this is a, a podcast for young Catholics, all Catholics, but especially young Catholics, I wanted to, to maybe end with something you mentioned earlier about hearing at, at the Synod a desire to reach young people, but also this reality that often we are trying the same old tricks to try to do it and it's it's not working. So what are, what are you thinking about in terms of um, your work here in Brooklyn about trying some new tricks to reach young people? One of the things... Somebody quoted to me a, a statistic recently, something along the lines that, that five out of six Catholics after their confirmation um, within 10 years will lose the connection to the church. So let's just use that. Okay. One thing I'd like to start with, well, what about that one who stayed? What can we learn from the one who stayed? How do we build up that Catholic life? In Columbus, there were many missionary movements. And I see them coming all over, um, all, all over the country. Um, so young Catholic professionals just opened a chapter here in New York. We're having conversations, maybe even to expand that into Brooklyn or Queens. One of the things I said in the in the uh, synod is, you could look at it and say, yeah, there were far too few young people engaged in the life of the church. But the sign of hope is that those who are involved are very committed. And what can we learn from them? And how do we help them to be the missionaries in a new era in the church? Yeah, and help them feel like they're not alone. Like that there <laughs> well, that's are exactly people. it. Yeah. Right. I always say that. The devil's tool is isolation. To make us feel that we're weird because of what we believe. You're alone in this. So I, that's exactly right. In the old days, it was the Knights of Columbus, the Holy Name, where people would join clubs. The people aren't, aren't joiners. So what do we do that maybe they might be more event-centered or more conversation-centered or project-centered, missionary-centered, however you might see it. It's a little more nimble. Or regional instead of per, like parish-based. Exactly. Like that kind of thing. I mean, I'll say like I'm, I'm Catholic today because my youth group in the Diocese of Columbus, Ohio. So like I, I totally hear that. Um, Bishop, we want to be respectful of your time and, and thank you again so much for, you know, taking the trip up in the Manhattan, uh, to spend some time with us in our studio. It was only across the bridge. That's right. <laughs> it's a beautiful, that's a beautiful crossing of a bridge. Isn't it? I love that. Um, we do have one final question for you. Um, we asked this of all our guests, uh, and if you could canonize one person living or dead, Catholic or not fictional or real, who would it be and why? Well, now this is this is going cold, so I'm going to go with a priest, and it's going to have an Ohio connection. Um, and he's both fictional and real. His name is oh, Father wow. Father Lamy. He was a missionary um, from France and basically founded a number of the parishes in Ohio, mm -hmm. Father Lamy. What makes him famous is he, the fictional part, um, there's a, uh, a, an American writer, Willa Cather, and she wrote this book called Death Comes for the Archbishop. It's not more, but I assure you, okay? <laughs> it's actually basically the death at the end of his life after a well-lived life. But this priest, he founded um, Paris is sort of up in the north, Danville, um, oh Mount grandpa, Vernon. My grandpa was born in Danville. <laughs> okay. And so um, so he, he and another priest, they basically founded that area. Then he was sent to be the founding archbishop of uh, Santa Fe. Um, so in, in the book, he's called Father Latour. In real life, his father Lamy. And I was recently, we had a pilgrimage down in Washington at the Basilica Shrine in Washington. And in the sacristy area, there's a little area where there are uh, representatives from different walks of Catholic life. And Father Lamy is one of the windows. So 
Okay. Just going cold. I, I bet I could come up with a, a few lay choices and men and that. women, no. but that's one that comes to one that comes to mind. Well, you're gonna send me down a rabbit hole. Uh, so, man, that's very exciting. Um, so, Saint Father, a little Lee, bit of yeah, a, a little bit of your uh, Ohio roots. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of them, man. Okay, well, uh, Bishop Brennan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, if you want to hear more from Bishop Brennan, whether you're in Brooklyn, Queens, or not, you can always check him out on the Big City Catholics podcast, which is uh, you can find wherever you're listening to this one. Um, thank you so much, Bishop. I had a great time chatting with you. Thank you very much. Playground parks with the trees and the cars Brownstone buildings with the kids on the porch Murals on the walls for the ones that we lost Bodegas on the corner, let me see what's in store Subway stations with the maps and the cars Summer cookouts, uncle got the sandals on Statue of Liberty, we holding up the torch If they ask where I'm from, tell them this is New It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And before we get started with parish announcements, I want to remind our listeners of another great resource for growing closer to Jesus this Lent. Uh, we found a great opportunity from one of our partners. Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Scherschlich is a podcast where you learn how to meditate and establish a daily habit of prayer, all while discovering the truths of the Catholic faith. It's the fastest growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. Each day, a different topic is explored, allowing you to learn your faith in bite-sized daily portions while you pray the rosary. So join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a rosary, all in under 20 minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app by searching Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosary.net, www.dailyrosary.net. All right, and now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. What do we have this week, Ashley? First, we want to give a, a shout out and thank you to last week's guests, uh, J.J. Wright and Tristan Cooley. We went to their production of The Passion here in New York last night, and it was truly incredible. It was amazing. Uh, it was so much talent on that stage. If you if you haven't listened to the whole thing all the way through yet, I ple- I really encourage you to do so. Uh, this Notre Dame Folk Choir is so talented, and it's Definitely going to be one of the most meaningful things I do this Lent for my own prayer life, just watching that. Totally. And if you're in the Pittsburgh area and you're listening to this on Friday, it is not too late for you to go see the production. That's right. So they're going to be at the Biom Theater uh, on Saturday night, March 18th at 7.30 p.m. Um, you can still get tickets. So if you're in the Pittsburgh area, please check that out. Um, you can find tickets by looking through Biom Theater or the Notre Dame Folk Choir's website. We'll have links to that in our show notes. And now March Madness has officially begun. Um, In our bracket, 
of Saints is going strong. We've had some some tough matchups so far this week, uh, including Harriet Tubman versus Martin Luther King. Uh, I think it was Mr. Rogers versus Gandhi. Gandhi. Yes. Uh, for context. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you've given none of that. A couple uh, Jesuitical listeners, uh, Chris Kincourt and Jeff Johnson, have organized this really great Saint March Madness based of, on guests that have been canonized on this podcast. So they've taken a number of matchups um, and they're posting daily polls in our Facebook group where you can vote. I didn't expect to have to choose between like C.S. Lewis and James Baldwin, for example. Um, but as of right now, that is tied neck and neck, 50-50. So, um, if you so would your like, vote matters. Yeah. If you'd like to weigh in, uh, you can hit facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical, and you can help determine the top Jesuitical saint of all time. And we want to remind you that we are doing a book giveaway for our friend Kirsten Powers, um, a former guest on the show a couple times. Uh, we talked to her about her book, Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. Um, it's out in paperback now, and we have three copies to give away to Jesuitical listeners. Yeah, and so we're going to be raffling those for members of our Patreon community. Uh, and so if you want to be included in that raffle, and again, this is a great book about how to talk to people that might disagree with you or drive you nuts and you still want to love them, uh, we certainly support that on the show. Um, if you want to be included in that raffle, we're going to reveal the winners on Friday, March 24th on that episode, um, which we're going to record on Wednesday, March 22nd. So you got to sign up by then. We'll do the raffle that day. So you can do that at patreon.com slash America Media. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, what do we have, Zach? So I am double dipping on my pilgrimage, which to the Holy Land, uh, if you didn't listen last week, I got a tattoo and you can listen to me wince in pain uh, while I get the tattoo and talk about what that meant to me. But I wanted to come around because I have I learned this practice from uh, Father Malone, who we mentioned earlier on the podcast, where if you have any significant or big event in your life, either whether it be like a, a pilgrimage or a retreat or even more secular things like a, a, a wedding or a, a big party or something you've been looking forward to. Um, he suggested like praying the rosary um, and substituting the five mysteries that you normally would um, with five graces that you received uh, during that pilgrimage or that event. Um, and so that way you can kind of go back and, and meditate on them and spend some time with them and try to get uh, try to find more of what God is trying to give to you from that experience. And I thought that was super useful and helpful because sometimes when you you have these things and people ask you, oh, how was your 10-day pilgrimage to the Holy Land? It's like, I, how much time do you have? Like, where do you start? Um, and to whittle it down to like five graces uh, is hard, but it's also really useful as, as a prayer practice because um, sometimes, I don't know, it, it can be too much to take in. And I, I really like this because it feeds into this Ignatian idea of repetition. So in the spiritual exercises, um, Ignatius encourages people to basically like go back to the same gospel passages over and over again and the same uh, meditations over and over again, because um, basically you're not going to get all that there is to get the first time around. Yeah. I really like the idea of, of praying the rosary in that way, because every time I've been on a pilgrimage at the end, the, you know, if there's a priest leading it, he'll, he'll like say like, you know, we're we're going home, but like the graces of this pilgrimage will stay with you and you'll be unpack unpacking it for weeks. And I feel like 
in theory, yes. But then you go back to the real world and you have your job and stress. And so having a very concrete way of taking it with you in that way through a rosary um, with specific graces, uh, I think is really appealing. I haven't I haven't been on a, ro- a pilgrimage yet, but I'm, I'm excited to try it next time. Yeah, it's like a, almost like you're just like savoring some of the some of the gifts that you've been given. Um, and from that savoring, okay, can I learn more about what God is giving to me or asking for me. And and it doesn't have to be good things, you know, we should say. If there's, you know, sometimes like if you go back and look at something that seemed like a desolation, right? It that's often actually I think in my life when it's been most useful. If I go if I go back to that, it's like all right, I might not understand the first time what God's trying to tell me in a period of desolation. I might not even understand the second time. But if I go back, you know, maybe a third or fourth time, it's like, oh, okay, I'm starting to see where you were walking with me there, God, like where you're pointing me. So listeners, if is this a new practice for you? Um, do you Are you someone that loves to watch the same TV shows over and over again? Uh, why is that? Maybe consider it for your prayer. Or if it's something you resist, maybe try it in your prayer life and see if that yields any fruit for you. So uh, if you're curious, just just Google Ignatian repetition, but it is as easy as it sounds. It's just revisiting things in your prayer. All right, I'll get us out of here. Judge Whittacle is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>